This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. After the rest of the, uh, the winter term, this is the longest title I've ever come up with, I think. <laughs> Uh, it came, I'm not quite sure why, but uh, um, somebody didn't like the way it was, it was doing a conference in Minnesota, I mean a short and it just got longer. Anyway, that's what I've got. Can Christian people hope to have a redemptive influence in the polarization of American politics? So you'll all know who to vote for at the end of this time, <laughs> and your minds will be set at rest about the future American democracy. Um, I'm afraid not. Uh, I'll give you the outline here, uh, and I'll be shifting back and forth to that. <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> I don't think that this week I'll have to persuade any of you that Amer- American politics is polarized, <laughs> even to the point of seriously endangering its ability to function. Uh, just this week and probably still going on right now half the people in one room full of our nation's highest leaders look at a problem and see a serious violation of the constitutional role of the president the other half the people, leaders in the same room see only a brazenly fabricated attempt to get rid of a wonderful president Uh, it's not as if they're looking at different events or different people or speak a different language They're looking at the same events, the same people, and they speak the same language. Uh, But they're divided by what they can see, or divided in what they can see, by which party they belong to. What's going on? What do we make of that? Well, I'm not going to be able to resolve any doubts you have about the impeachment, I almost said impingement, uh, (laughs) proceedings. But I do want to look at the polarization that's behind it. Uh, Because Christian people are really involved in it, very involved in it. The term evangelical Christian, as you all know, is now has come to mean perhaps first in the public mind a voting block of votes that that fall in a predictable way. It no longer means a group of people with certain theological convictions and spiritual commitments or not so much anyway. Uh, I'm not going to give a history of this polarization or even an analysis of it, uh, or certainly make a blueprint for its solution, but I do want to give a little bit of background, sort of philosophical, theological background uh, for both sides in this in this polarization. But <clears throat> then look carefully at the scriptures and, and to look at the Bible in a, hopefully in a thoughtful way to see how can Christian people plug in redemptively to this. If, they can, if, we, if Christian people can exert any influence against this polarization, what would it be? How could we, uh, how could we do it? 
I gave a lecture about a year ago on something like this title. This is going to be something of a, re- a retread of some of those ideas, but um, a, a bunch of new things as well. Um, I'll start with a social psychologist called Jonathan Haidt, spelled A-I-H-A-I-D-T, who wrote a book some years ago, or just, well, 2013, called The Righteous Mind, subtitled, it was the subtitle that got me interested in the book, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, which is basically our subject tonight. Um, It's received a lot of attention, as of some of his subsequent books. Um, He's especially interested in looking at the sweep of moral foundations of people, of the whole world population, of people across the world. What's the shape of human moral frameworks? What does it look like? Um, the, the obligation, things they experience as obligations in different cultures around the world. He is an atheist from a Jewish background, politically on the left, and embraces evolutionary psychology as his methodology. So he's not exactly standing with evangelical Christians. Um, but as many people do, uh, he contributes a lot of very stimulating ideas uh, and interesting thoughts about the problem that we all struggle with. Um, I'm giving you a, a, a kind of a uh, broke. I don't know how many. Can, can you see that very well? On that side? If I get out of your way, um, I'd like you to be able to see that. That's as back as far as it okay, can go. Okay? That's as far as back as it will go. Um, I'm sort of simplifying his framework a bit uh, and uh, tweaking it in ways that make it more useful for me. Um, there's three different frameworks uh, or moral foundations uh, up there called autonomy, community, divinity. And under them, five moral oppositions, moral contradictions with each other. Value versus their opposing value. Uh, Moral versus immorality. Uh, And these these categories are somewhat loose. They overlap. They can be stretched. The words words, uh, sort of bend a bit. Um, I'll just start out on the... On the uh, on the left side here, um, under moral foundations, the, the the foundation of autonomy. The ethic of autonomy is just those moral principles guarded that, that are there that we formulate to protect human freedom, to protect people from getting walked on, stepped on, uh, and, and and abused. They're dominant. Dom, this this foundation is dominant in. Uh, the modern secular West of autonomy uh, is an idea of self-law. Autonomos means self-law. We usually associate people who are very who are, spend a lot of time on uh, over there with the political left, but that's not entirely the the, the 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 turf of the political left. But concerned with harm done to people, which constrict their well-being and their freedom, as in hurting them, cheating them, or restricting them and trying to get, get to grips with what is morally wrong with that. 
The political right also has concerns there, but it's the sort of main stomping ground of the left. Uh, its background is the, the, the notion that people are sort of freestanding individuals in society and have, they have desires, needs, inclinations, and they need to be free to express those. Uh, the backdrop of this is, uh, I sometimes think, is the idea of the, uh, that you see in Hobbes and Locke and other philosophers that a human being starts off in a state of nature, an individual in a state of nature. And what do they do? What does this individual do? How do they function? Um, <clears throat> in its typical strong form as it comes to us, someone like Rousseau would say, uh, man is born free but everywhere in chains. Meaning a child at least is free because the child is not subjected to society's repressions and chains and so on that, that hold the child uh, down. Um, we are unspoiled as individuals, as children, but the constrictions of society warp us and derange us. Greater freedom will lead, lead us to greater flourishing and a better society, said Rousseau. Um, so society is, is all about impinging and restricting us. Um, if that's what we believe, if we believe that what restricts us are the structures of society that, that limit us, uh, then it's very easy to believe that we can re- re-engineer those structures of society and make a better human being, provided the problems of human, uh, that, that humans come up with don't come from human nature itself. Because that's the, implica- the, the assumption here, is that the problems don't come from human nature itself, but from, uh, uh, from society that restricts the clean uh, human nature that we started with. Uh, <clears throat> And so you see in the, in the Enlightenment, the whole movement called the Enlightenment, the, their great vision is that we could do better than the church has done uh, by restructuring the world and we'll make a better society from it. Uh, a major leader, according to Jonathan Haidt, in this trajectory is, is uh, John Stuart Mill, another uh, 19th century philosopher, uh, who, again, strong focus on the, the autonomy as the foundation of morality, uh, he and his followers uh, uh, see the most important issues in, uh, as questions of individual freedom where it is restricted by economics, by social unfairness, uh, by those who are marginalized, unprivileged, uh, underprivileged, and so on. The main boundary to the expression of our freedom is when your, your freedom should be limited only when it would hurt or limit somebody, hurt another person or limit their freedom. That would, he, he doesn't see freedom as just you express what's in yourself, but he says it should be limited by, by your perception, perception of whether you're limiting somebody else's uh, boundary or freedom. Uh, care and harm. Uh, it's the first opposition I'm putting under there. Uh, care is good, harm is bad. Care particularly for the innocent and the powerless to be able to help themselves. Uh, a very basic concern is care for the poor and minorities for the disempowered. Care to prevent harm, limiting others, uh, right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, their, their pursuit of a need for medical care, education, economic justice, and so forth. Uh, the second under autonomy is fairness versus cheating. And here there are two versions of this. Um, on the left, the concern uh, is more with social justice issues for those who've been left out, for those who've been oppressed. 
treated unfairly by individuals or the system, disempowered who don't have a shot at equal opportunity as the rest of society do. Um, think of the objections of the left to the Republican tax reform last year where the top 1% gets uh, the, the biggest tax break. Unfair, the left says, looking at this uh, as, as, they, as they see this unfold um, with maybe some justification. Uh, that's the, the political left view. The, on, the, on the right, fairness is concerned is concerned for that, but is concerned also for what they call proportionality, meaning that the rewards of society should go proportionally to those who deserve them, not go to those who don't work, who cheat the system, who are free riders. Uh, so I don't want my tax money given to the laziest people in society or to illegal immigrants. Uh, fairness is a fairness of proportion. Uh, and so on. These distinctions are, are very compressed, and I'm oversimplifying all, all the positions I'll be uh, dealing with here, but it gives you some idea. Uh, moving across the, the foundation of community, the background here is not so much the lone individual uh, standing in the world, just dropped into the world, deciding what he or she will do, but is the conviction that... Um, we are actually social creatures from the start. We don't just start as single individuals in the, uh, alone, uh, but uh, we come, uh, and, and the freedom and issue, freedom issues are, are, are very much involved in the nature of society. Um, being a social creature is intrinsic to human nature, so true flourishing and freedom involves... Fu- functioning well in society. Uh, Haidt sees Emil Durkheim as his sort of head man uh, there, spokesperson for, for the, the, the ethics of community, uh, foundation for more, a more conservative direction in, in, in thought. He was a 19th and, and late 19th and early 20th century French sociologist, very different perspective from Mill. Also very, very influenced by the Enlightenment, but brought more of a biblical tradition into that without himself being a Christian. He saw the human individual as a social creature, but not kind and good-hearted, necessarily, but instead present, uh, possessing a selfishness uh, and an aggressiveness which makes him dangerous to society. So society must be able to restrain that selfishness and that aggression, uh, for the sake of that individual and the sake of society. We need social institutions that are strong, not strong as in a strong police force necessarily, although that doesn't hurt, but strong in an inspiring loyalty, belonging, and willing self-sacrifice. They must figure out a way to get people to want to value self-control as more than self-expression. And that was Durkheim's direction. You see what he's doing here. So we don't just want a, uh, a secret police and a, 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 a system of punishment. We want to construct a society that makes people desire the things that are socially uh, um, constructive. To do that, a society has to have aims and values that are higher than individual freedom or pleasure so that people would know it was worth sacrificing their autonomy for those values. 
And as all of us know, we need good reason to give up our autonomy, good reason to give up our our unrestricted freedom. If we are going to limit ourselves, we want good reasons to do that. Uh, So it's worth sacrificing autonomy for those values. He saw the importance of religion in society. As I say, though he wasn't a Christian, I'm not sure he was even a theist, um, to provide a framework to understand how to make these happen. He wrote one of his famous uh, sentences, man cannot become attached to higher aims and submit to a rule if he sees nothing above him to which he belongs. Okay, I'll read that again. Man cannot become attached to higher aims and submit to a rule if he sees nothing above him to which he belongs. The big word being belong. He's calling for religious meanings without which he didn't believe society will hold together. Because without a higher meaning system, uh, he had what you called anomi. He's the one who used that word uh, first in, in this particular sense, which is a deep, profound sense of boredom and disengagement from life, resulting from a lack of purpose and a lack of meaning and a lack of direction. Here I am. What am I meant to be doing? I don't have the faintest idea what I'm meant to be doing here or why I'm here. Uh, and and uh, I, I don't have any shared moral convictions with anybody around me. Um, and he saw that in his own research. He saw that in the suicide rate of a lot of people he dealt with uh, who were heavy on alumi. He talked about the need for what he called moral capital, which sounded interesting to me because I remember Francis Schaeffer talking about moral capital a lot. In, in many ways, the same idea with a, a sort of accumulated moral sensibility from the ideas you believe, from the people you know, from the institutions you're involved in, uh, a sense of the value. Of, these are valuable things that we need to strive for together. Uh, and those can be very deep in us. Those can be in our bones. Those can be deeper in us than just what we would bounce off and say, I believe this and I believe that. They can be very, very much in our bones. Uh, he wanted to have a society build up and, and, and encourage moral capital of the right sort. The moral foundations of community are associated with the political right more and are grounded in different assumptions, mainly that moral obligations must contribute to the success of groups. Groups, as in families, teams, companies, associations, tribes, churches, nations, each more than just the sum of the individuals that make them up, but having a group that is something, that is an entity. Groups are entities. They're not just accidental arrangements of individuals who happen to be in the same place at the same time. Uh, uh, they shared community uh, and, and have uh, held together by shared community obligations. The existence or vitality of these groups needs more than just the moral foundations of autonomy. Uh, we need more than just convictions that we need to keep from harming people or enable people to express their freedom. We need something that actually encourages um, moral obligation of the community. Uh, we need social structures and moral values that encourage belonging. That's an interesting way to, to, to say a very important value. Moral values that encourage belonging. So there would be moral opposition to, I've got here, loyalty, or the, 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 the moral opposition of loyalty versus betrayal. Uh, this he, he would define as what's going on in small groups of people, like uh, families, 
teams, coalitions, a company, or what they would call not what what the challenge is for sociologists working in this area is to, is to come up with what holds people together in non-kinship bonds. Kinship holds people together because they're family, and they grew up together, and they have commitments to each other, hopefully as families. But how do you get people to hold together and stick together and be committed to each other who are non-kinship, uh, who are just uh, out in society? How do you create non-kinship bonds? If you don't have loyalty, then the social group comes apart, and society as a whole is harmed. Again, Durkheim. It can require giving up the self's desires in order to serve the group. But then you've got to have a group that is valued by the self and and by society. Disloyalty, betrayal, treachery is seen as morally bad, evil, maybe even worthy of punishment. Then there's the moral opposition of authority versus subversion. This is the same thing, only on a larger scale in his categories. Similar to loyalty versus betrayal, but in, in, a, in wider groups like nations, cities, armies. If a nation or any large political institution is to hold together, there must be willing to accept and obey certain customs, rules, and uh, taxes, in a sense, uh, that you spend that make it, that, uh, that are worth spending to be part of this larger group. Sacrifices for the common good of the larger group. I, uh, son has mentioned experience we had, or not we had, but some friends of ours had um, in Switzerland, because I think in, in Europe there's sometimes uh, a greater um, sense of the of, of these group uh, loyalties uh, in 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 the structures of society, uh, we had some friends living in Switzerland. He worked for what used to be Digital Equipment Corporation. Uh, uh, what? Cousin. Yeah. Uh, who? Who? Uh, but who had a had applied, applied someone to come in Geneva to Geneva to work with them, and who got an apartment in a nice apartment building of Geneva. You have beautiful balconies uh, with facing the scenery. Um, they moved in, got established, and hung their drying clothes out on the balcony to dry. Makes perfect sense. Um, they got a note under their door um, the next day or two saying, don't hang your clothes on the balcony. We don't do that in this building. They think, whatever. Uh, who is uptight? Uh, come on. Uh, and so they kept on hanging their laundry up uh, there. And they got another note that said, we don't do this. Uh, don't hang your laundry out there. So they didn't do it for a while. And then they thought, well, it's blown over. We'll do it another time. Uh, the third note, and this is you need to really think, was saying, okay, your work permit has been revoked. You must leave Switzerland within a week. And it was. And they freaked out, went to everybody, every digital, got all the higher people to pull high strings in high places. There aren't really high places in Switzerland to pull strings from. But, but, because of the structure of the Swiss government. But, 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 uh, nothing could be done. They had to pack up and leave the country within a week. And you think, whoa. Uh, but you see, they, they had what they valued as a community, and it, they had certain rules that you have to live by. And if you don't want to play by the rules, we really don't want you around. We just don't want you around, and why should we have you around? Uh, anyway, just an example. Community has communities have rules that they make on their own that shape the kind of community they want, and and uh, that's that's a 
um, a reality that we, as we travel, stumble into all sorts of different variations on this. Uh, At a higher level, nations require patriotism. For a nation to last, there needs to be loyalty to one's country, loyalty enough to pay taxes, loyalty enough to, at least for many people, be willing to join the military, which means to go to war, to possibly die for uh, in service of the country. The opposite of this sort of patriotism is treason, which is usually punished with uh, pretty significant severity. An interesting example, uh, just to toy with, is most people, most of us, even who may not be strong patriots who fly, patriots who fly the American flag in front, on our, from our front door every day, would probably not use the American flag as a rag to clean something you've spilled up on the floor. Okay? Um, why not? Is that a moral issue? It's something to think about. Is, is that to you a moral issue? Would it be a moral issue to, to use the American flag to, to mop up the floor if you spill something on the floor? Uh, be, be clear that nobody's rights are hurt. Nobody's freedoms are taken away. Nothing wrong on the autonomy side. You haven't cheated anybody. But many people feel there's something wrong in, uh, about doing that and would feel that it's a moral issue. I don't know. Would any of you see, feel there's a moral issue? Don't know. No, no, no one committing. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you feel there's any moral, if you feel any moral twinge with that, then what you're experiencing is the community foundation of your moral framework. <laughs> what your, your, your experience is, it, it, it is, is that you, you have a, a sense of loyalty that shouldn't do that. I mean, it's no big deal, but it, it shouldn't. It, it, we, we should find another thing to use as a rag. Uh, <laughs> or, again, on the community side, John Kennedy's best-known phrase was also appealing to the, to, to the morality of community. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That's straight community morality, community modality. Then, divinity. Uh, This is quite different from the way Jonathan Haidt raises it, or uh, totally different, Uh, but he has has divinity, but what he puts on it is is very different from what I'll do tonight. Uh, I want to give you my own take here because I'm speaking particularly in a Christian framework. the opposition here is just for or against the living God, for or against the God of the Bible. Um, uh, here there is more more to morality, much more to the morality here than there is just to harm and, and, and care or cheating and fairness. Uh, also more than on loyalty and authority. God is personal. He created us in his image and likeness. And we would know him, that we would know him and image him by the way we live. So what is for God is believing in him, trusting in him, obeying him as Lord. This means valuing the things that he values. Valuing his creation because he values it. Especially valuing human beings made in his image. Um, The vast majority of the ethics in the Bible have to do with how we treat other people. Because human beings are really, really important uh, to God. Uh, he tells us the way he would have us live to treat each other, 
to follow his laws, to have a good life ourselves, and also to um, to benefit society. <coughs> Obedience to God and the the, the, uh, the, the the moral principles of divinity aren't restricted in one area. They they immediately go over all of them. All three areas have to do with God has everything to do with how you whether you treat people fairly, whether you treat a, have a, build a community. Uh, in other words, the, the ethics coming from div- divinity reach out to the whole thing and, and aren't restricted under their own, uh, as it looks like they are here. For example, our Fourth of July declaration that all men are created equal, if they're endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which means that equal rights which is the basis for our democracy. First of all, human dignity, that's one thing. And then equality between all people, that's something different. depends on dignity, and it connects to dignity, but it's something very much different. Uh, You can believe in human dignity in general, but without believing in human equality, both dignity and equality are anchored in the God of the Scriptures. Uh, Going back to Genesis 1, uh, are anchored there. And so... uh, Every time you hear the declaration, uh, though it was written by, or the first draft by Jefferson, who was shaky in his faith, um, uh, he at this, at this point had to appeal to a creator God uh, by, by whom the human dignity was established and human equality is established. The basis for the democracy that we, uh, that we have and the, the best democracies going. Um, People were not an accident. They were created and valued with an equal intrinsic value, um, grounded in God. So the morality of care versus harm is not independent of divinity. Uh, you need a God behind that to know that people are worth caring for, are important when you harm them, uh, and when they need help, really need help. And it's important to God that you help them. Uh, What is against God is denying all this, denying his authority, his will, rejecting his love for us. This is sin, disobedience to God. It takes place not just in religious ways, but in every area of life, in political life, in economic life, uh, in sexual life, in church life, in family life. Devaluing and hurting people made in God's image is sin. Although sin is worthy of God's judgment, you have to say quickly here, it is not the last word, because God has, has brought redemption through Christ, forgiveness and rec- reconciliation with him, even in our sin, as we come to him in faith. And I'm not going to be able to dwell on that at all uh, tonight, because there's too much else to talk about. But this is vital when we talk about the moral anchor that God is, that we don't speak that without saying grace is the last word in the Christian faith. Mercy is the last word, finally. Uh, so where, who are we? If we trust in Christ, we're children of God. We're adopted into God's family. Uh, we're meant to live that way as members of his family. For example, our bodies are not playgrounds, but are temples of the Holy Spirit. Uh, our possessions and our hours but belong to God on temporary loan uh, to us as stewards. We're to love our neighbors with the level of commitment that we have for ourselves. Radical ethics, what I just said in those last few sentences, a radical uh, moral framework uh, for how we see ourselves, our possessions, our lives here on earth, and each other. Um, 
predictable polarizations. I'll get you back here to the uh, to the outline where Roman numeral two here, predictable polarizations. I'll mention only two. You could spend till breakfast uh, listing different areas of polarizations, which I won't uh, uh, do to you. Uh, but I'll just take uh, t- two. How how these two views can polarize themselves. Uh, take for a sexual ethics. If you only think in terms of the ethics of autonomy, of the, of the autonomy foundation that I had up there, the left one that has uh, care and harm, uh, why not have sex with any consenting adult partners? Uh, give kids condoms, prevent them from harm, STDs and unwanted pregnancies. There's no unfar- harm or unfairness that's done that we can see uh, if you have safe, consensual sex. So what could be wrong with that? If the human body is basically a playground to be enjoyed and there's nothing sacred about it uh, or, what we, or what we do with it, they're right. They are right. But if you recognize that there are moral obligations of community and divinity, there are the whole areas of moral reality that impinge on sexual behavior. Institutions that are at risk by our sexual misbehavior, marriage, family, uh, as well as many, many more consequences happening than we can see happening as we're in the midst of the present moment. Um, consequences on character, our own character, uh, consequences on children to be produced, or children already existing. Um, future harm is always um, is not always easy to see. So sexual behavior, when it's in, in, in the context of all three of these moral frameworks, is a very different story, is much more complex and connected to the whole of life. Power and freedom. This is the second area of, of, of polarization. I'm leaning here on a guy, a, a political scientist at Notre Dame, called Patrick Deneen, wrote a book, I guess a year or so ago, called Why Liberalism Failed. The title is a bit misleading. Um, because it's not just a bash against liberalism, um, but he blames both right and left for grasping at complete freedom, autonomous freedom from God. Or he doesn't use, he doesn't bring God into it, but you sense God is there without being ref, re- referenced. Complete freedom themselves, with no no uh, I- interference. He blames both right and left for 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 grasping freedom in its own way. He, he would say that the state and the market are the two biggest players in our culture. The state and the market. Uh, the left wants freedom for the state so that they can have the power to do what they want to do to fix the ills of society as they see them. So the state want, or the, the left wants freedom to do what they want with government power and shape things and do what, 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 they, what they want to do. On the other hand, the right wants autonomous freedom from the, for the market to bring unfettered economic growth, they would hope, uh, which will then bring prosperity and, and, and flourishing to the rest of society. Uh, just to give you a sense of how much they can be polarized and against each other, they both offer themselves as saviors and rescuers from the other. Uh, so the left fears greed most and sees the state as the only protection against the predations and inequalities that, if, that will be produced by the free market. 
So the state will save you from the violence of the free market uh, uh, that it will de- the society that it will destroy, uh, the inequality and, and the injustice it will it will it will uh, create. On the other hand, the right fears not so much greed, but fears laziness, and sees the market as the only protection against the misguided social and economic engineering and the strangulation of the government all nanny. So the, the, the right sees that the, the market can save us from the, from the overreach of the government wanting to control everything and be a nanny. And, and uh, with very shaky ideas of how to engineer a society that don't really work anyway. So, so says the right. So what he's driving at is that we have, we have these two major powers, the biggest powers, he would say the biggest powers in the society, the state and the market, clashing against each other. Now, sometimes they're not against each other, but for each other, with each other. That gets tricky and, and I think, sometimes very dangerous. Uh, but, 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 but then he goes on to say, both the state and the market are destroying local institutions, so sort of swallowing them up and, and enveloping them. You can think just what Amazon has done to small businesses, or you think what, uh, what, what, what the market itself has done to church just in in the acceleration of, of mobility, of jerking people from one place to another all over the country, all over the world, and not uh, and meaning that churches don't get built up the way they used to get built up when people were more... more. Anyway, I could go on with all sorts of things about how uh, associations uh, and institutions are, are torn apart. But he, their point is that... His point is that the state and the market are tearing apart institutions, and, the, and small institutions and associations are the most effective elements of society that teach people how to live morally, that teach people to how to function, to work in an association of people. You have to have, whether it's a school, it's a church, it's a little league, it's an anything, a library, you have to work together to, com- to, to produce some product, to produce some result, and you have to bend to the, to the needs of that institution and make it work, figure out how to work with other people that you can't get along with, that you can't get along with, and, and these are being... Uh, 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 bulldozed down, as it were. Uh, just to, uh, if you're taking notes, there's a book that's going to come out that I'm sure is going to be a very interesting book on exactly this by Yuval Levin. L-E-V-I-N. Uh, it's, it's, it's coming out in March, I think. The, the, the start of the title, the title is probably longer than my title tonight, but the start of the title is, is It's a Time to Build. That will be really mm-hmm. worth uh, looking at just for this Idea. He's looking at the destruction of of institutions and associations, and how that happens. Very interesting. And um, anyway, uh, Dineen's book is unfair in places. I don't want to sign on to approve of it altogether. But interesting to understand how some polarization works, and fr- from these two sides that I've talked about, uh, polarization, which neither side is particularly Christian. I mean, the state, neither the state nor the market is particularly Christian. Uh, but they're, they're uh, uh, at each other, pulling in different directions. Biblical morality. I'm, I'm at Roman numeral three here to let you know where, where we are, just so that you know I have a plan. Um, where do we start as we try and bring a Christian revelation to all of this? And I'm going to start in an unusual place in a way, but, but I'm going to start in Genesis because it's so often neglected. Uh, the moral responsibility for creation. And this I really want to get into, our picture of biblical morality. 
On the sixth day of creation, God made man and woman and had work for them to do. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Um, And in Genesis 2.15, he further focuses what their job is going to be in the garden, to till it and keep it, two very rich Hebrew words. The word to till means to serve, actually. at, uh, in in 20, Joshua 24, where it talks about Joshua. And for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It, used, it That's the word it's used. Uh, to serve the Lord, to till, is the word it's used to till here, or translated to till, meaning to serve the garden. Uh, and to keep it means protect it. means uh, uh, watch over it and guard it. Uh, in Genesis 9, you see in most Bibles the covenant after the flood, uh, is described, you know, our Bibles usually have a little superscription over each section, every few paragraphs <laughs> in the Bible. It, in most modern Bibles, most of mine, it says, the covenant with Noah. Last year we had a lecture here by Peter Harris, who um, co-founded the, the, the Christian environmental organization, Arosha, gave a wonderful lecture a, a year ago. Um, and he pointed out as he went along that, read that, that's completely wrong, a covenant with Noah. Let me Because you actually read the text of the Bible itself, and in two or three times in that very chapter, it says, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds and domestic animals and every animal of the earth with you. And then later in verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Noah and his descendants, that I guess includes us, are bound in the same covenant with the rest of the living creatures that God has made. The rest of the living creatures on earth are, are bound into the same covenant uh, with us under God. Um, that, that, that means there's a connection there that echoes the responsibility we have to care for creation. It comes in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, some claim that the the first nature literature ever written uh, in the world is in the last chapters of the book of Job, Job 38 to 41, when God is asking questions of Job and God exults in the creation that he has made. Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? Or can you draw out the leviathan with a fish hook and press down its tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in its nose and pierce its jaw with a hook? You sense God's joy and God's exultation in the, in the beauty and the power of what he's made. Uh, this, you see this come out in many psalms. Psalm 104 is wonderful. It's just exploding with praise to God uh, for the nature of his creation. Uh, but there's another theme as well. In the prophets you see that the sin of the people is tied often to the suffering of the land and God's creatures in the land. Okay? Hosea 4. Uh, There's no faithlessness, there is no faithlessness or loyalty and no knowledge of God in the land. Swearing, lying, murder and stealing and adultery break out. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns. And all who live in it languish, together with the wild animals and the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea, are perishing. 
can see this in Isaiah, you can see it in Joel, you can see it in Habakkuk. Uh, the, the same theme. Human sin and the suffering of the created world, the animal world uh, as well. Uh, in the New Testament, we find Jesus tied even tied to, uh, we think of God the Father as the creator. That's true, but we, Jesus was also involved in creation. In him, all things, says Paul, all things in heaven and on earth were created in him. Things visible and invisible, all things have been created through him and for him. Colossians 2.16. Uh, we live in God's creation. We breathe it, we eat it, we walk on it, we love it. We are God's creation, and we were created to care for it, um, not to take it for granted. Creation care is a moral obligation to care for the garden, to care for the world of living creatures, and the rest of creation as well. Fifty years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, the first evangelical that even broached the subject, called Pollution and the Death of Man, trying to wake evangelicals up to the problem of the environment and our responsibility to stand up for it, be involved in uh, in its protection and its care. A lot has happened since that time, uh, but there's still a lot of waking up to do. There's some encouraging things of Christians' involvement in, in, in uh, creation care, but nowhere near enough. That, so I wanted to start with Genesis, and I wanted to uh, give you something in an area which I think has been neglected, I think it's very neglected by Christians, given the, our concern for the range of ethical issues around in the world. Now I want to talk about the Ten Commandments, because that's the best compression of biblical morality you can find. <clears throat> um, in the light of the moral foundations that we've looked at, uh, Notice when you read them, you're not giving, you're not being given a list of do's and don'ts for individuals. Or you may read them that way, but that's not how they're written. They're oriented toward how you're going to live together and be, actually, literally, they're, they're how you're going to live together and be families and neighbors together in this new land that God has just given you. Uh, how you can learn to keep it rather than fall back into the slavery that I've just dragged you out of. Uh, in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, both as the two places it's articulated. The, the Ten Commands are a profoundly social bit of literature. I am um, the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. You'll live longer. Uh, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's house, wife, servant's property, long, long list of things to not covet. Uh, I want to reflect on these for a minute, <clears throat> starting with the first three commandments, which deal directly which in our other um, uh, diagram, the, the, the moral, moral uh, framework of divinity. Uh, about who God is. I've just brought you out of slavery. Keeping these laws will enable you to, enable you to keep your freedom. Um, the, the Ten Commandments is, is part of the covenant itself, of the bond between God and his people. Uh, the first three are to do with God directly. Get God right, and everything else will hinge on it. God brought you out of Egypt. 
you did not make him, he made you. So don't make phony gods or idols out of wood or stone or your own imagination and then fall down and worship them. Uh, don't do it. This is really dumb. Uh, so don't do it. Uh, and don't mess with God's name. Don't use it as an empty word for blasphemy or for punctuation when your imagination is weak. Just throw in a, uh, a reference to God for emphasis, uh, for an exclamation point. Uh, his name is sacred. It's interesting that the first petition in the Lord's Prayer is also, Hallowed be your name. The first petition of the Lord's Prayer. It's not an accident that that's the first petition uh, there, because it's the real grounding of how to begin. And and in what we talk about of what we talked about with of moral capital, it starts with God. The name of God means who God is, and we respect God's name because it represents who He is. And it also is using language, and language is totally important to commun- God communicating who He is and what we are to do and who we are. And so the importance of language, we think of mere words, rubbish about mere words. Words are super important in the biblical framework of things. Our language is more important than we ever imagine. God's lordship can only be expressed in language. I think it's important because God, through his word, stands over all that we do, all the moral foundations uh, that we make, over all the actions, loyalties, traditions, and so on, uh, that we form, uh, sometimes standing against these traditions and loyalties, uh, sometimes uh, helping us build them. You should never just embrace tradition or loyalty because it's tradition or loyalty. Because um, either can hold idols and, and real evil and, be, and, and, and at the same time add great respectability to things that are actually evil. Uh, this is interesting in terms of our stuff on polarization because the left in our society is apt to resist a lot of a lot of loyalties and traditions espoused by the right, um, and, and 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 some rightly so, because they say some are immoral because of the loyalties and traditions that you hold block your ability to reform what you're doing and to change what you're doing and, and to to hear God's word more clearly. Uh, when we have traditions that are that are themselves not moral, our traditions can hold that hold us in in loyalty to those traditions in ways that are really uh, that need to be reformed. After all, slavery was a very deep tradition. It took a lot to get rid of slavery, and many people would say we're not even yet through with it uh, in terms of the the, the the downstream result of slavery. Uh, Loyalty to one's nation, a very good thing, but it can, with the wrong kinds of traditions and, and loyalties, it can become nationalism, which means treating it as an idol. It can include racism. It can have the great force of exclusion of those who aren't part of this nation, prejudice, and war. Sexism is still an entrenched tradition and still doing well, even in the church. Um, all sorts of traditions. I look at the Roman Catholic Church and trouble that the Roman Catholic Church has gotten into with the sex abuse scandal. And it's perfectly fine to have loyalty to the priesthood, but it's not fine to have more loyalty to the priesthood than to children in the congregation. And that's where they got into trouble. Uh, more loyalty to the priest than to the kids in the, uh, in, in the churches. Uh, and so, again... Uh, loyalties and traditions are necessary to... to 
to strengthen our faith, to build up our, our, our sense of the, the, the depth and the breadth of our, of our, of our moral principles, what it is to be faithful to God. But they're very dangerous when we get them wrong, uh, as, as our moral capital. Think of Jesus' words. This is a really, this is the kind of thing some people think, oh, that couldn't be in the Bible. Uh, but it is in the Bible. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? That's there. <laughs> there in, in Matthew 15, verse 3. Uh, Martin Luther King used God's word against the deep traditions about race to bring reform. Uh, the, the word of God was key, part of his, his uh, hammer uh, that he, he, he used on, on racism. We need to be totally committed to letting God's word establish our loyalties, God, first God's name and God's authority uh, over all that we do, um, our traditions and loyalties to, to establish them and to critique and reject them if we need to. Moving on, uh, the Sabbath has a vast amount to say about your work, the other people you may have working for you, about how you see your time, how you care for yourself, your family, your neighbors, your animals, and your land. All that is in the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. Uh, do no work on the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath holy. See, it's huge. It reaches out to all, all, all into all the areas of of the moral framework, um, all three foundations. Honor your father and mother. The, the prohibition of adul- and the prohibition of adultery deal with the sacredness of family and marriage and of the human body. The left is apt to reject loyalty to marriage since it restricts freedom of sexual expression. But God's word puts a huge emphasis on loyalty to the family under God. Um, and the, the sanctity of the human body and, and sexuality. Uh, but the family uh, is, is centrally important. It's the basic building block of society. But the family isn't God. The family is the most basic building block, but it isn't God. Actually, a number of Jesus' parables, uh, the, the, the thing that leads you away from following him it was, would be, it was family, because family would be an idol itself. Family as an idol is a brutal uh, tool in society uh, because it's not family under God, but family in the place of God, and and that it becomes really uh, can, can be a vicious one. Uh, commandments versus against murder and stealing are, are against the ultimate violation on the harm, and again to get to, to emphasize this again on the other way, and uh, the, on the harm and autonomy. The fairness and cheating side. This is uh, this is the ultimate violation of both harm and unfairness uh, uh, under the autonomy foundation. The physical and, and, and physical and economic injustice to take someone's life away, to, to allow allow them the, the freedom to be alive, to take to deny them the freedom to live and to to have what rightfully belongs to them. Uh, this connects to biblical morality solidly in this autonomous side. So this is not the, the possession of the left. Uh, I, I, it's, it's possession of Christians who believe that this is really wrong. Um, and and uh, the, the, this, this is what, what you see hammered, hammered, hammered by the prophets uh, according to how, how do the prophets judge the society it's never how is the, trink, is the king treated by his subjects. 
or how the wealthiest people are treated uh, by the king. It's how the poorest people in society are treated. The poor, the disadvantaged, the disempowered were treated. That's when the prophets go anywhere to find out what's going on. That's what they, those are the people they see and start asking questions of. So to determine if a society honors God or not, they look to see how the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the sojourner, the refugee, how are they treated. Uh, In writing about Jeremiah and writing about the good king, Josiah, Jeremiah wrote, he judged the cause of the poor and the needy, then it was well. Is not this to know me? In other words, this is to know God, is to judge the, uh, the poor and the needy well. We don't judge the poor and the needy well. There's a way in which we don't really even know God. Uh, there is a lack in the knowledge of God. And of course, the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament letters is overwhelmingly powerful in this direction as well. Jesus, as you treat the least of these, my brethren, so you treat me. So it doesn't say you treat them badly. You treat me that way, however you treat them. And the letters of Paul and James, um, commandment against false witness, lift up again. This is, they're so social. Uh, uh, this is the sacredness of truth and truth telling, absolutely necessary for society to hold together. You need people at Labrie, we need this. We need people who are living here to tell the truth. If you have someone who starts telling lies, the whole thing starts to come unglued and you start to distrust almost everybody. Uh, and, and it's, community is totally undermined when truth, just truth telling, is not valued. <clears throat> Tell the truth to each other as we stand before God. Lying is not some mischievous, something mischievous or naughty. <clears throat> it destroys the fabric of society itself. And usually brings it with it betrayal, <clears throat> cheating, and at a societal level, corruption, which then leads to economic disintegration. <clears throat> Someone doesn't tell the truth, can't be trusted, simply destroys community as a terrible neighbor. Finally, the Tenth Commandment is against coveting. Uh, here again, this has both to do with our standing with God. If I covet, then I'm thinking that what, whatever he has given me was not enough, because I want more. I want what he has. I want what she has. So there's something against God in my, as I covet someone else. There's something that me, that, in me that, 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 that is speaking to my, my, myself, saying, God hasn't dealt me well. God needs to be, deal with me better. Um, I'm not at peace with God. And also, coveting is a terrible scourge in society when jealousy and envy uh, of coveting gets gets loose and does its work interpersonally in the dynamics of you know, personal relationships. There's a warning about a, a whole list of varied things that people should not covet. Your neighbor's wife, house, land, manservant, maidservant, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. They really wanted to cover the cover the bases here and, and say uh, it's possible to covet anything and it's wrong each time. To not covet, this is a wonderful thing to me, is, is to be free to enjoy investing in the success of your neighbor. Let me say that again. To enjoy investing in the success of your neighbor rather than to resent the success of your neighbor. is to enjoy yourself contributing to the success of your neighbor. It's being able to do what Paul says in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Very hard to do, I'm ashamed to say. Much harder to do than you'd think uh, until you stop and think about it. Not coveting has a huge role in building and protecting community, being a neighbor and free to love. Okay, finally, to the fourth thing, 
on fourth Roman numeral to make a difference. Remember, we began with the idea of how can Christians make a difference in the area of polarization. Um, where, where does that come in? I haven't forgotten where we what we were aiming at in the start. Um, my first, I have three questions here to ask. What if evangelical Christians who are meant to believe in the whole Bible would challenge themselves and one another to expand their political vision to the full range of biblical morality? What if, in other words, what if Christians would grasp the full counsel of God here? Not cherry-picking Christian ethics, Christian morality, uh, what are confirmation biases make familiar and comfortable on the one side or what our confirmation biases make odious and condemnable on another but the whole counsel of God the word of God says the word of God does say that it can cut through even our our confirmation bias of even the confirmation biases of Christian people uh, you see that phrase used a lot today confirmation bias as if it was Indefensible. I mean, it was. It, it couldn't be broken through. Nothing can break through people's confirmation bias. It's there, and it's a permanent state of affairs. And you just develop. You you just use everything to to uh, to fit into it somehow. And, and that's just not true. It's just not true. All sorts of things can blow uh, our set assumptions to pieces, uh, and need to. The word of God certainly needs to uh, some of the time. Um, so I, I, I want to just ask uh, what it might, might be to adjust, to redraw some political lines, to add some concerns uh, for public public morality somewhere. Uh, I'm not thinking this might, I'm not aiming at producing a group of Christians who, are, who stand shoulder to shoulder like clones uh, on, uh, on political matters, uh, like, you know, ten soldiers in a row. Uh, not that I'm naive enough to think that, that would be possible. Uh, I, I wouldn't want it anyway. But I rather pray that looking at the full range of biblical morality and the cutting edge of, of Christian morality into all these different areas that right and left are coming up with and hanging on to and chewing on hard uh, ought to pull the extremes of today's left and right closer to center. That's my hope ought to pull us in from hanging on to just things that keep us way out on the wings closer to center. There used to be a whole lot of uncommitted people in the middle that presidential candidates would talk to to try and persuade to join their side. Now the whole thing is much more the other way around. We have two sides, and if I develop enough fear in my side, I can get them scared out of their wits or angry out of their wits enough to show up and vote. Uh, And almost no time spent on those in the middle. Um, hopefully that won't be true as in this in this election, but I, I certainly fear it. But I want to I encourage Christians to get in a little bit closer to the center stage here. Not that we are, well, you, you see what I'm trying to say. Um, and we would be, in, in that way, uh, less polarized and in being closer to the center, better able to hear each other at least. Uh, second question. What if we could resist getting packaged um, here I'm probably going to get in deeper trouble. 
packaging, packaging feeds polarization. It means that you're committed to a whole package of positions from the left or the whole package of positions from the right. And you join up for one package uh, and there's enormous pressure that you stand within their, all their, their whole package. And you, that's where, that's where you stand. That's what you believe. Uh, and you join up for one package or the other. Your party that you've become and, and you do that, and you become a part of this, of the very polarization I'm trying to lean against. You see, I don't trust either the right or the left implicitly. If we lean to the left, where are we on pro-life issues, of ethics at the beginning and end of life, uh, at the status of marriage, on religious freedom? If we lean to the right, where are we on the prophet's message about care for the disempowered? Where are we on creation care? Uh, I don't see neither the right or the left, as I see it, has has an answer. Uh, has does justice to to the, what the Bible tells me. I want to strive for. I want to see in public life. I don't like packages because I don't think we can accept them today without feeding polarization, without it being incarnating polarization. We need separate issues. We need to be able to separate issues from each other. Again, to go back to Francis Schaeffer, I don't often refer to him in lectures, but I, uh, this is this is a really important part of his gift to us today. Um, he would emphasize, for Christians, you need to be able to be a co-belligerent without being an ally. That means this all. We, I mean, he would argue we need to think one issue at a time, not just joining a package, and let's think through each issue, and each issue. It may be that you, to, to fight for that issue, you may have to be a co-belligerent with someone completely different from yourself, who holds something totally different as a basic belief system, but they fight together on that issue. He says, praise God, go with them and fight with them on that issue. Uh, we need to be willing to join non-Christian or non-Christian groups, very different from ourselves, on specific issues, as co-belligerents with people without making them allies, without meaning, without having to agree with them uh, on, on all issues. Uh, now, we make a lot of enemies that way because we're stepping out of loyalty. We're stepping out of the, the, the um, uh, marching in lines. But, but uh, I, I think we need to. It, it raised tension between the two political parties, uh, there being only two political parties in this country as over and against parliamentary systems which, which usually have more but, but who, who have other ways of dealing with this but, but, but with only two political parties uh, it, it puts you out of sorts with the, those with whom you share the party if you are, are in a party uh, my personal dilemma now and here I'll get more practical with my own political struggles um, I'm not going to give you a libri position because there is no libri position on anything like this there's all sorts of uh, room for people to move around uh, they're just my own problems. Uh, in the present climate, I don't have a political home. You've probably sussed this out already, just what, what I said already. I am pro-life, but I'm also very much for procreation care, the care for God's environment. These two things clash with the system today, but do not clash at all in my mind. I think being for creation care is another way of being pro-life. I mean, it's inseparable from being pro-life because it's, it's, it's all about life. We live 
our life depends on having an environment to live in. Uh, and not just our life, but the life of uh, God's whole created world, uh, the creatures, all the creatures that he's made. Uh, pro-life puts me with conservatives, so liberals don't like me. Being an environmentalist puts me with liberals, so conservatives don't like me. Being liked is not the point. <laughs> that's not what it's about, and, and that's no big deal. Uh, uh, but uh, I don't want to be pressed into, one, into a package where I don't belong. Uh, into either party, uh, and I can't. I can't get there, um, and so I'm left with these two clangers of commitments that are going to make it very hard to know who to vote for next next November. I'm a registered Republican, but I've freely voted for Democrats for, for years. Not every Democrat, but for in other words, I'm a Republican because I think it's you know, in Massachusetts. It's I like to pretend it's a two-party system in Massachusetts. Uh, 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 but but just, I don't want to abandon ship. But, but uh, I don't, I'm not loyal to, to, to vote for a Republican. But, but, but okay. Um, I'm, I'm pro-life, but I'm also pro-creation uh, care. I think most of us here are more familiar with the moral status of a pro-life position and why a Christian might hold that. I'm going to leave that, because I'm just assuming that. Maybe wrongly, but I'm assuming that. And I want to talk a bit about creation care, because I think we're less familiar with what that that could mean. I am not, particularly at a time when climate presents a unique kind of moral problem. I think it's quite a unique kind of moral problem to us. I'm not a climate scientist, and I never will be. But over the last years, I've seen a consensus growing among those who are to the point that now between 97 and 98 percent of published climate scientists in the whole world agree that the climate is warming, that climate warming is real, that it is primarily caused by human carbon emissions, and if allowed to continue, it will be a catastrophe. That's a huge level of agreement on those things. Not everybody on, on the time scale, uh, how long this will take, what's going on. Uh, again, I'm not a climate scientist, as I said, but, and nor am I a prophet to whom God has sent a message. You're overheating the planet. Stop it. I haven't gotten that message from God, so I don't have a, a prophetic word from him. Uh, so how do I know? How can I be sure? How can I be absolutely sure? about this, to really invest in this, to commit to this. I can't be absolutely sure. But I, I've got my mind to wrestle with it. People who I trust to talk to all over the place, people who know much more than I do about it. And I ask myself, do you know enough to be sure that it's safe to ignore this issue? That's an interesting question you ask yourself. Do you know enough to know that it's safe to ignore this issue? Which is what vast majority of Christians are doing which is what most people in the Republican Party seem to be doing. I don't think so, really, because I think a lot of them are undercover, uh, very concerned uh, for this. But I'm convinced enough to think that we need to be moving on it much faster than we are and at a national level, though many uh, states and cities are doing quite a lot toward it. Without any compulsion on them, but just because there's a there's a um, 
enough agreement to, to do that at, at a more local level. The economic and technological issues involved are momentous. The, the, the chaos created by changing our economy and our technology enough to, to really adjust and radically limit uh, carbon emissions is huge. But, and, and time is not on our side. But we need, I think, real bipartisan leadership on this at a national and international level. And, and one of my friends who's working in this says, there ought to be, how could you get a better bipartisan issue than the environment? Everybody's is having weather. Everybody has to live with the weather. <laughs> and, and, and if anybody has children or grandchildren, they're going to have to live with the weather. Or expect to have great-grandchildren, they're going to have even more weather to live with if this is, if this is, uh, any, if there's any truth to this at all. Uh, this ought to be something to bring people together, uh, to be a healing of polarization if people can pull together and work in this way. I'm not naive enough to think we can snap our fingers and, and call it, and cause it to happen. But, but, uh, I feel really t- torn here and, and obviously in the present political situation, it's a very difficult, uh, place. Uh, I'm not going to give you a resolution of that because I don't have one. Uh, the third question here that I want to ask is what if we were committed to civility and kindness in all of our political discussion. What if we were committed to civility and kindness in all our political discussion? Uh, the Bible says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Boy, if there's anything that you can see working out in human history, you can see that. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, not just history and history books, in all, life all around us. You can look at that just in this last week in the in the debates over impeachment. That the you remember the chief justice had to rebuke the senators of the, because of their language. This is a group of people respected by the world as being some of the greatest leaders in the world, and they'll listen to the way you're talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the chief justice had a go at them, which I'm very glad for, and it seems to have made a difference, pretty much. I, I don't know. I haven't listened to the whole thing, but uh, people say it has made a difference. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Our tone can make mutual understanding and persuasiveness either a possibility or an instant impossibility. So you can be kind and gentle, and it still doesn't—you still won't be persuasive and get anywhere in a conversation. Uh, but if you're harsh, you for sure won't get anywhere in in in, in your attempt to persuade. Beneath this is the issue uh, beneath this issue is the need to depoliticize our faith itself to give to God what is God's and to only give to Caesar what is Caesar's not to give to Caesar the unconditional loyalty that belongs only to God and I think that's where Christians got into trouble here we've elevated the political issue to be the ultimate things that we're fighting for uh, and they're important but they are under God and we must obey God and be under God as we talk about them, as we talk to one another about them. Uh, so God hears how we use our tongues. God hears how we use our tongues to produce death, uh, if that's what we do. Uh, the line from J. Gresham Machen, which is helpful here, he said, Christianity will indeed accomplish many useful things in the world. But if it is accepted in order to accomplish those useful things, it is not Christianity. Let me read that again. 
Christianity will indeed accomplish many useful things in the world. But if it is accepted in order to accomplish those useful things, it is not Christianity. What he means is that that, what it would be, is Christianity used as a means to a higher end. Christianity doesn't get used. God does not get used to a higher end. It's not God that you're using. You're using an idol to get to some higher end. And fair enough. Admit it, you may chase a higher end. But it's not God that's been involved in uh, as you use his name. That's, that's uh, using it, making light of his name. Uh, using God as a means to a higher end rather than what it really is, ultimate truth itself. It goes all the way back to the first commandment, have no other gods before me. So, again, we need, a, we need a depoliticization of faith. Faith needs to stand as faith and um, faith in the Lord. <laughs> I'll just conclude here by a fat passage that, or by a passage that's intrigued me for ages in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua's about to attack Jericho it's the day before. I think he starts the conquest uh, of Jericho and then of Canaan. He's out wandering around in the field, I guess, and he looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you one of us or one of our adversaries? And he replied, No. (laughs) But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. Joshua fell on his face and asked what he was to do. And the man told him, Yes, get your sandals off your feet, for the place you stand is holy ground. Now, I think this is uh, a word to our, our atmosphere of opposition. Are you for us or against us? Are you standing with me or standing with the nasty idiot enemies uh, here? Uh, maybe this should be less important and rather be, are we really standing with God? <laughs> are we standing uh, with bare feet if it's holy ground? Uh, Are we standing with the full counsel of God, with the full scope of God's moral foundations that he's given to us? Uh, Maybe that needs to be our conviction and and our question. Okay, I'll stop there. And if you've not been here before, we have a talk like this, and then we have a free for all discussion for as long as anyone wants to discuss. And so if any of you need to leave, I've gone on quite a while. Uh, so if any of you need to leave, just go ahead and take off. Uh, otherwise, stay for as much as you want. I need this to sit on. Let me get myself organized while you think of questions you might have raised. Okay, over to you all. I can't believe I haven't offended somebody enough to... Hi, Richard. Okay, hi, Dick. Uh, Perhaps I will start out by taking an idea from C.S. Lewis, which C.S. Lewis wrote somewhere saying that uh, the Christian ethics and morality may tell us what policy positions are moral, which are righteous, which are good to, to try to achieve. And then a knowledge of politics tells us which programs will be effective. And so I, I, think, I think he recognized in that that you needed to know both 
is this a good program and some practical aspects of how do good programs ever happen in the world. Absolutely. And so you, you can't just you know, expect everything to come from, from the morality of it. And, or, or to come from, with, from Bible verses and drop them onto, into society and expect them to work. I mean, that, that is itself a, a huge... Can you move this a little bit further away? Yeah. So that you're not Sorry. Um, it, it's a huge issue of how, which I don't necessarily want to get into tonight, but how you take biblical principles and turn them into possibly public policy or law. That's, that, that's a very complicated issue, and we can get into that if you want, but I haven't tried to touch that at all, but I totally agree, because uh, there's a huge amount of wisdom, um, and, and even though we can look at civil laws in the Old Testament, that doesn't mean we can transplant them, that we're functioning on the ground as practically uh, uh, wise and, and helpful laws, uh, that we can transplant them to today and expect them to, uh, to, to work right. So I think you're absolutely right. We need a huge lot of wisdom and experience, and and um, but I think Christian wisdom too, in terms of how how to put it together, as we're dealing with how to put make something work on the ground. Um, the more we know about human nature from the scriptures, the better off we'll be. And and uh, so, but it certainly isn't a, an easy translation between biblical principles and and laws on the, on the ground. By, by event, before I forget, I, I remember I gave when I gave this something like this lecture last year. I remember what you pushed me on, which I have remembered ever since, is that, well, how do I, how am I active as, as much as I want to be in my party? If you if you if you uh, take one issue at a time, or you think through one issue at a time, uh, and, and 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 so on, how. You're, and you're out of sorts with your party, does that mean you can't be fully involved in a party? Not, that, to me, is a huge tension, and I still haven't resolved it. I would have tackled that if I dared. I was hoping you wouldn't ask it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, may I respond a little bit? Yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned in your speech just now the concept of, I think, uh, moral capital or social capital. Yeah. There is also political capital. And so every person who is an office holder, if he's if he's doing a if he's good at it, he has an idea of how much political capital he has at a given time. And that sort of mostly consists of goodwill with the voters. And so he accumulates goodwill by by getting elected, by giving speeches, by kissing babies, by all those things. And so he knows how to get goodwill. And he knows that if he does something that people don't like, he loses some of that political capital. And he knows if his political capital gets below a certain level, he might get defeated in the next election. So he always needs to have a positive level of political capital. And so in order to do something that's different from what his party's normal position would be on a given issue, he has to spend some political capital. And so he's it's a real asset. We can't yeah. quantify it very well, but it's real, and every politician knows it intuitively. Yeah. And so he's spending his capital to do something that he thinks is right, but may not be in agreement with most of the people in his party. He can't do that very much. He has to pick and choose the issues that he will differ from his group on, 
or his political capital will go too far down and he'll lose the next election, yeah. and then he won't be able to do much have, at all. Have to change parties fast. So that's one of the, well, sometimes yeah. that happens. But that's yeah, one of those practical things. Yeah. And I, I, it's, it's tricky because in, in a way this applies very differently to someone who is running for elective office in one party or another. The rest, most of us who aren't doing that are just trying to figure out who to vote for and what should I push for, what should I invest in or encourage. <coughs> and it's easier for us, I think, because we, 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 uh, it doesn't cost us to vote to, to, unless we're very involved in the party, in the machinations of the party. Um, we're not, uh, it doesn't cost us our career it, it, to take a different view from our party's position. But, as you suggest, it, it's, uh, we need sometimes, even for elected officials, I, elected officials, I long to be able to elect officials who are willing to not get elected next time around by behaving in a way that that, that it is according to conscience, but not according to the, to the way that the they have great careers in politics. <laughs> well, there are, there are. But I mean, I, I must say, I, I uh, it was a terrible thing Lindsey Graham said after just after he <coughs> been fighting Trump like mad, then flipped completely, and now he's great, uh, praises Trump as much as anybody. They asked him, "What, what happened?" He said, "I had to be relevant. If you don't believe in getting reelected in this game, you're in the wrong business." Mm. And I think. <coughs> Yeah, but you get elected to do something more than get reelected. You get elected to do something and to risk, maybe even to have the courage to risk your neck uh, and not get reelected. Anyway, I, those are people who didn't get reelected, and I really respect them for what they stood up for. Someone from North Carolina who voted against tobacco, the tobacco industry. Sure enough, he didn't get reelected. Yes. So I think I share your frustration with the packaging. And, and I think that's sort of what we're talking about of like, well, if you're a Republican, then you have to subscribe to, subscribe to this long list of things. If you're a Democrat, you have to subscribe to this other long list. How do you, what, and the two-party system I'm also frustrated with because it just, it gives itself to polarization. What are practical ways to fight that, to be not single-issue voters or package voters um, and to encourage more conversation. Yeah, that's, uh, I had some friends in England who, not this last couple of years, but before that, would say, oh, you should have a parliamentary system, and it goes much better. <laughs> now, whether they would still say that in England, I'm not sure. <laughs> I rather doubt, <laughs> I rather doubt that that, that, uh, that that would hold up, because I <laughs> grief. Our, we may be, that may be even worse than our situation here. But <clears throat> it depends where you're standing in a way. Um, I think um, this guy I've been talking to about the environment is, is um, he's doing he's working with kids in school and there's a there's a uh, there's a bunch of bipartisan environmental groups that are in, in ferociously bipartisan. They just really don't want to be uh, to just Kids from one background to the uh, or the other, and they're trying to work on uh, uh, Christian evangelists for environmental change. Uh, no, I forget. It's it's an art. It's a uh, uh, 
activist group to, to work on, on uh, climate change and aware, climate change awareness. And, and, uh, but it's, it's uh, by, by its definition, bipartisan. Uh, I, that, uh, it would be harder to find on the pro-life end of things, uh, but there's wonderful organizations called pro, uh, pro-life feminism and things like that. that, is, that feminist, uh, for life. feminist for Life. Which does a lot I mean, in terms of what that's doing to, to nail down uh, a much more uh, a piece of turf, which gives them a leg, to, a way to talk, uh, affirming a lot of feminist ideas, not all feminist ideas, but a lot of feminist ideas. But but doing that uh, in, in terms of uh, a pro-life position. So I, I think if we, of course. The views of parties get made by people in them, and who have strong views and are persuasive people. So, uh, if we're involved in a party situation, we can see what we can do to influence things. Uh, but it may be that we're better off with um, activist groups that who are, are working on areas that you find particularly <coughs> in an environment. There's so many different areas that are that are working on on the pro-life thing. There's so many different areas there. That, that one can work on, and and uh, I I just say smoke those out and find them and you get going uh, there. And those are just two issues. It's not as if those are the only two issues that are. I just mentioned because these are the two things I'm hung up on, um, and and uh, I, I see as really uh, uh, polarized. Uh, so so it, th- th- there's a lot happening. Um, with very energetic and, and imaginative people trying to do something good. Yeah. I was just wondering um, how far we can compromise on our beliefs in order to vote. <coughs> in order to? If we want to vote, if we want to be part of the democratic process. What if there's no one that exactly lines up with our beliefs? How far... In the unlikely event that there's actually no one who lines up exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Do we vote for the lesser of two peoples? Where do you draw the line? Yeah, that's really, I think you have to. I mean, I, mean, I don't, whether you justify it in that way, <clears throat> not sort of a, a phrase I don't like very much, unless you, but, but you're doing something like that, I think. Um, I think it's highly likely that we have to wrestle with that quite a lot. Um, and it, well, what's hard is to weigh the different issue and weigh the different people because it's not just the issues which is more important pro-life issue or creation care <laughs> how do you balance those against each other it's it's who they are what else is involved um, what are the issues at the moment what's going on how much can someone change for example um how much can people change the situation on the ground on either of those issues, the pro-life issue or the environment issue. Uh, so I, I think there's lots of room to move and to talk to friends and to scratch heads and, and, and um, wonder and pray uh, because uh, it, it's enormously complicated when you stop and think about it. Um, and, and and how and Ronald Reagan was pro-life, but didn't actually get much of anything done in that. Partly that was pro-life. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. 
but, but, but um, partly because, I, as I've been told, a lot of the pro-life people couldn't, anti-abortion people couldn't agree on what a constitutional amendment should be, whether it should ban all abortion, even in the case of rape and incest or not. They couldn't agree there, so the whole thing collapsed by disunity from disunity within the, within the pro-life group. So, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 I think we, we have to believe that, you know, as you see from the Bible itself and from every other aspect of Christian experience, God knows that this is a broken and confused world. God knows he's turned us loose in a, in a world that's very confusing and, and a mess and, and uh, wants us to do something the best we can with his help. Uh, so I don't think we should be ashamed of that. I mean, how, what can you do when you have two people to vote for the, the last presidential election? I uh, was not happy. Uh, <laughs> 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 yes. Yes, you mentioned a couple things. Number one, uh, Ten Commandments being <coughs> social commandments. And that's social between us and social also with God. Uh, very interesting. It's, it's the, the only faith that really has that relationship with God. Um, the second thing that you talked about was uh, that we are still dealing with slavery and the, the uh, fallout from having a slave economy. Um, the abolition movement came directly from the Second Awake, Great Awakening. Um, and, and if we're going to change things, maybe it's not a question who we vote for, but it's a question that the church needs to come together and pray in, in a similar fashion. And what happens out of that who knows? But yeah. Uh, yeah. we have to look. We have to look to toward ourselves for the change. Yeah. You know? I think I think that's absolutely true. With a lot of I think though we we can also go. I mean, a lot of black people right today would say we need more than good friendships across the racial lines. We need some systemic changes in the system. For example, uh, I have a friend who's who's. Um, Written the book sort of for white people. No, well, yeah, it's. But, but he would say that one of the biggest things keeping black people poor and people keep keeping people in the ghetto is their inability to have accumulated and inherited wealth. Okay. Now, why does why is that? Well, the main way we accumulate wealth uh, and, and store wealth is in real estate, uh, and. Black people were really, slavery wasn't half of it. Jim Crow and the whole, uh, what's happened since, uh, since then, redlining and the, the federally grounded, uh, prejudices of the real estate industry, the bank industry, and, uh, were just brutal and have given us ghettos. Uh, and the, the, we can be friends, but could it be that more proactive things need to, and I'm, I'm not, again, to say I don't have a program here, I don't have a program to slot in, but, but a lot of black people would say, we, we will take you seriously when you're willing to talk to us about systemic changes and ways to, to correct this, uh, because it's not, the, the ghetto is not being corrected now, the ghettos are getting deeper in a way, and, and uh, there's less and less hope for what's going on there. 
So, but I think that's, I mean, we've been going to a black church for the last 25 years or so, and that's been a wonderful experience for us, a wonderful experience. And, and we've loved it. And I don't know whether we've done a great deal. We've done something, I think. Uh, but, we've but learned, learned a ton. We've learned a lot. But, but, but um, that's, that sort of thing, I think, is part of it. Uh, but, but we've also got to, to realize that to, to, to meet what the, the situation is, we may need to think more deeply of things that are much more, oh, you know, a lot of white people who want to be friendly to black, black people uh, are very freaked out by the uh, by changing anything uh, systemic in the way things are working. Um, now, of course, that depends on what we mean when we talk about But, but I think you're right. Isn't it? I, I, you know, you know they, they talk about reparations, and I, I talk to people, and one of the, one of the uh, people who, who had, had a suggestion to how it would work is that is the people who can find a an ancestor who actually was a slave, uh, then we'll make some sort of reparation with them. Uh, and I talked to people in my church about this, and I said, we have no idea. How would we ever know? We, had, yeah, we must have had slaves back there, so we don't know who they are. We can't prove that they are. And what's more, as I look at what's going on, it's not just slavery. It's what's happened since Reconstruction and Jim Crow that has shaped what we fa- what they face today. It's what nice white people after uh, this this uh, the Civil War was fought. Uh, you know they got they got uh, all black men are able to vote right in, 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 by 1870 by 1900. It's right across the South, not a single black person or the Deep South, not a single black person could vote. Uh, and it was the whole thing was shut down. And uh, something as simple as the GI Bill after World War II, I think this was close to black people, or so difficult for them to get. Who had fought in the war? Yeah, who had fought in the they war? Just anybody else had. You know, so there's all sorts of stuff that's gone on that needs to be sort of unearthed and and, and, and met, uh, as well as getting to know people and getting to love them and getting to be in, in, to connect with their churches and so on. We found it a really wonderful experience. Yes? Uh, you were talking about community. Oh, how, in your own opinion, could we kind of either mend or like collaborate between, not, not the exact two groups, but in the Christian faith? Like, how can we like, not like, Unbound our moral ethics, but like keep, like keep our ideas in in faith to get to a like a middle ground. You know. Yeah, that's a trick. Uh, I, I will let me get. Oh, this isn't the cop out. I hope uh, my brother-in-law. Is doing a thing. Let me see if that goes. Yeah, he's a pastor, uh, PCA pastor, just barely, sort of, sort of retired. Uh, and he, he was based in Charlottesville for a while. He's been here and there in New York. And he's set up a thing where he will go into a congregation that struggles with 
you know, hostility across the political lines within the congregation and do a weekend on how can we get along, uh, which I just heard, heard really good things about it. Mention his book and his name. Yes, his name is, I, I was going to give, his name is Charlie Drew and his book is called... Oh, it's something, oh yeah, something like can Democrats and Republicans sit in the same pew together or something like that. But if you look at Charlie, if you Google Charlie Drew, it's, he's in about the third edition of this book on political, on Christians. But, but the, the, the website is uh, org. I can I can let you look here. Uh, and he and a couple of guys go go and do a weekend at a church. And uh, obviously they wouldn't bother doing it in a, except in a church that was that was struggling with that. And and uh, so uh, and they've had I've had heard from them that they had really good times. I've heard from other people who've been there and, and been receiving it that it's, it's really going well. So, so uh, yeah, that would be that would be something that's concrete and could could because uh, that's that's a place we really need it. That's where it really hurts when it's when it's you know we have Christians getting at each other and and because in the language here there's such condescension and disrespect mm-hmm. that's heaped on each other. There's such uh, just scorn uh, that goes back and forth. I mean, just look at the Senate. You know, look what's the language in the Senate? It's just brutal. Uh, and, and so we need to we need to find a way to get it and, and start where you have to face these people again next Sunday. You know, so you've got to clean up your act somehow and, and uh, do that. Yeah, Mike. And it, oh. it, it really relates. Sorry, did you? Uh, I, I, I want. I, <laughs> I saw you first, and I'll get, I haven't forgot you. Don't leave until I get you. If you're about to leave, go ahead. No, no. He's, he's, I can't leave till he goes. So. <laughs> She's the last one. I'm okay. <laughs> um, I was going to say, that this whole area is one where it really relates to the topic of Ben's lecture next week, is the, what does it mean to have God's name honored in the world? Yeah. Right now, God's name is not being honored by the by the behavior of evangelical Christians. Mm-hmm. And all of our neighbors are non-Christians, and they, it just makes them hate the Christian faith, mm-hmm. what they, the, they, the kind of, the, the language they see going back and forth by so-called evangelicals, which really, as Dick said earlier, seems to be less about a theology and a view of Christian ethics and more about a, a, more a sort of voting block. But it's it's really dragged God's name in the dirt, and it's something that the church needs to repent of and, and weep over and, and see as a that should be a great motivation that we figure out how to um, how to love each other across across divides and how mm-hmm. to be civil with each other. Yeah. I, I was going to say one other thing to related to um, the question about you know can you how can you vote without compromising your since there's, since there's rarely a candidate who holds all of your Christian... Who's as right as I am. <laughs> no, but I think it's really interesting that the Old Testament law was given by God to, uh, to a theocracy, to a nation that was his people. Now, that's not true of us today. But even the Old Testament law was not a law made for perfect people. 
it was made very much, it, it was not a perfect law. Um, it was speaking, and Jesus made that clear when he was in debate, debate about divorce law. He said, Moses allowed divorce because of men's hardness of heart. But it was not so in the beginning, before the fall, um, before there was divorce, and before men's hearts were hard. But in fact, the divorce law that Moses allowed gave women more, more rights and protection than they had when they were just left to the hard hearts of men, who would just dump their wives with absolutely no recourse, with no piece of paper to show that they had a certificate of divorce. So the law, God's law, even to God's, even to God's people in the Old Testament, uh, was not a, a perfect law for perfect people. It was a law that was designed to move them in the direction of greater justice, greater protection of the vulnerable, and moving toward toward greater holiness. And I think when we think of the, um, the image Jesus gives that we're meant to be salt and light in the world, salt, one of the, one of the things that salt does is it preserves from decay. And that may be one of the main things that Christians can do in a culture. We're not always blessed to be part of a revival where we see masses, but I think we should be praying for revival. Seriously, praying daily for revival, for the Holy Spirit to be poured out in great power and return, bring about repentance in the church, in the world, and really bring us back to God. In the meantime, we work and being salt in the world May not mean causing a revival, but looking for ways that we can slow down decay and be a force for, for the common good and the way we vote. And I mean, I'm going to have to vote. I don't next November. I'm not, I don't know what the choice will be, but I'm sure it's not going to be a choice between somebody who's all good and somebody else who's all bad. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to weigh up and decide. And one of our sons just <laughs> one of our sons wrote in Mitt Romney last year because he just couldn't stomach voting for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. But he knew his vote wouldn't count. I won't do that, but I'm not sure what I'll do. Sir, you had your hand. So I, my income is similar to hers, but from the standpoint of, um, uh, I just wonder how to, how should Christian, I want your perspective on voting as an individual versus voting as a block. And um, what I mean by that is uh, I think uh, I think it's, there's a group of people that kind of feel like, you know, it's my solemn duty to go to the booth and do what, what's important. And um, they move in that way. And I've seen some pastors that encourage that um, behavior that, you know, you're voting is an individual act and I'm not going to influence it directly from the pulpit um, but I will teach moral rules. And then there are other pastors who choose to, um, I guess, maybe even recently have found that um, influencing Christians in a kind of a community setting to behave in a certain way gives them more political power to do God's will. So, does that make sense? Uh, I just wonder what your thoughts are about these to views yeah. of acting in politics as a Christian. Yeah, that's a very tricky one, isn't it? Uh, because it depends on whether it's voting on an issue. Sometimes you have a referendum on an issue. You're not electing a person through an office or something like this. You're uh, an issue. That's clear if there's a, if there's a 
uh, more clear, not necessarily totally clear, uh, but uh, I get very nervous with pastors telling people who to vote for. Uh, now, th- there would be times when a, 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 a vote would involve a moral issue so clearly that it would be hard to see how a Christian who really took the Bible seriously would want to vote in a different way. I think still, though, that the pastor ought to say, it's your decision. We, I can tell you what I think is wise, but, but you've got to do it yourself. I think it's, it's, it's a... Uh, it, it isn't a group event. I mean, because uh, uh, so many people will not think about it because their leader is going to do the thinking for them. You know? And, and uh, churches can work that way terribly because it's a lot of work to think through. I mean, it's a lot of work to think about how to read or to ask questions or make phone calls or whatever it is. Uh, but I think it's, I think it's uh, an important thing to do and to take seriously. Uh, so I, I, I'm nervous about the, about the, uh, the, the pastor telling people what to do. I mean, we've had, for example... The past governor came and spoke to our church uh, when he was running, uh, and and um, just spoke, assuming that everyone would vote for him, and asked well, asked for yeah, it was Deval Patrick, uh, and and uh, uh, and asked for volunteers to help him and so on, and the guy who was not our pastor actually, but. Uh, one of the guys who was, who was presiding, uh, a fellow minister, uh, after he he got down, he left the church, went right out the door, uh, didn't stay for the rest of the service. But 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 uh, this the, the pastor stood up, or not the pastor, but the, the minister stood up and said, "Listen, we are not telling you who to, who to vote for. This is not." Uh, in other words, he dis he disidentified the church from. We've not had the governor come here to tell you who to vote for. Uh, and and we and expect you to toe the line or go out to help him. But I, I, I appreciated that. I think a lot of people appreciated that as well because a lot of you know thoughtful people in the church they're not not. And our pastor uh, will often say when election day comes around, he says says uh, you got to get out and vote. You don't need to tell me what you vote, who you vote for, but if you don't vote, don't tell me about it. <laughs> so, so in other words, to get out there and and uh, do the work and 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 vote, but but being very quiet about uh, telling people where to turn. I, you can wonder whether I uh, just egregious, just terrible situations where the the choice is so clear. Uh, but but even then, we, we shouldn't need to be told that. <laughs> is that? Uh, uh, you, you might be able to find. Uh, I can't think of examples of what I would want to accept. <laughs> Maybe there are some, but, but uh, we would want to agree with because people need a kick in the tail to, to think themselves, and and, uh, and and that's good for them to know that no one's going to tell them what to what to do and to, to really. Because this, this is our hope is that people will think enough of themselves that they'll they'll really connect connect dots and. And think it through, even if they vote for the wrong person sometimes. <laughs> yeah, Richard. I can tell you another C.S. Lewis quote, which is to say that uh, C.S. Lewis heard many political sermons, 
and he's on a church attendance, and he said, what it usually tells you is not so much what the Bible says about an issue, but which newspapers the pastor reads. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Marty. Well, I just wondered, you mentioned the possibility of not, I mean, I agree the pastor shouldn't tell people who to vote for, but on the question of referendums, that that's interesting when you have you know issues that are on on a local ballot say that would be a good place to have, for churches to have discussions about it. yeah exactly you know, like a discussion about um, one of the thing, one of Deval Patrick's um, things that he put through that I really hated was casinos you know the, the argument was it'll bring in more taxes but just knowing what not sure that, what is that was that a referendum oh I don't know maybe it wasn't but it was one of his it was one of an issue an issue that he was really hmm. fighting for but some of the issues that that a candidate might be for, or a referendum issue, that would be a very good thing for church, church yeah. to have discussion about and have people maybe come and talk about both sides, but actually get discussion going and educate. And before an election between two people, too, to discuss it first. Yeah. But as it opened discussion, you know, I think that's a, that encourages everybody. And of course, you may have someone who's a very powerful uh, speaker and leader who might want to dominate, but you'd have to sort of the, the pastor would have to sort of uh, make sure, make some, some, make sure someone moderates. Uh, but it's it's a, in a way it's a it's a you know it's a, it's a learning opportunity for everybody, isn't it? And and to to respond to it and to say, well, let me think about this and, and I, what she said I hadn't heard before, and I'm going to think about that and incorporate that in what I know and and. and and having discussions about it would, would uh, <clears throat> just raises everybody's consciousness about the freedom we do have, <clears throat> and to have input into into uh, the whole elective process. Have you seen an example of, of of either of those that you that you've described working yeah, well or not? Sure. I mean, for me, uh, I grew up in a church where uh, I went Atlanta, Georgia, and our pastor would have politicians in the church and he would come off the podium to where the announcements are made and introduce the politicians and make it clear um, I'm not endorsing anybody. This is not our role as a church. So I I kind of appreciate that. But then I think of um, the evangelical movement, uh, political movement, that has been you know, driven by, oh, I'll use the name, Jerry Falwell, yeah. uh, who um, became very successful and influential uh, for his university and in politics uh, because of that behavior. So I think um, as you know, Christians see this, I just wonder how, um, you know, what they think. Maybe they think it may be um, a good practice to move towards being more political because um, winning for God. Yeah, that's a really good point, isn't it? I mean, he when he did that, he was no longer, I think, I don't know, was he still a pastor and did it as a pastor, or did he do it as a fundraiser and a leader of a moral majority? I don't know. Uh, I mean, that, that's a free, it's a free country to do that. He certainly had the fund, got the fundraising down, and, and, uh, uh, yeah, and, and I, I wouldn't want to say what he did was in itself. I mean, he did some good things. Uh, I, I, I think I have difficulty with his whole style, 
and what and the way he went about things and some of the things he was pushing for. But but uh, uh, I don't think I'd want to say it was wrong be wrong for a Christian to start a nonprofit that is oriented toward a certain issue or a set of issues uh, to fundraise for it, to get backing for it, to um, use the internet creatively for it. Um, that's what everybody else is doing who's trying to get anything done. Uh, that doesn't mean it's okay, but I don't see any uh, any reason why not. I, the difficulties I have with those guys are, are what they said when they got there, when they got their voice. I, I really have difficulty in what they... Uh, their whole demeanor and how they treated God and uh, and so on when they uh, robbed and so on. It's a uh, heavy, heavy scene. Uh, yeah. Joshua. Uh, just a question, sort of the other side. How, what, are you, what are your thoughts on people in the pulpit uh, maybe denouncing certain political leaders or even policies, especially when there's a, a broader evangelical culture that, at least in my lifetime, has baptized a Republican candidate pretty much every time and said, this is our guy, we're all in them. Do you, do you, you say the church has done this? or Evangelical church has. Do you see then people, leaders that are Christians or you know identify theologically with evangelicalism, but maybe not with the voting block. Do you see them having a responsibility or maybe even not a responsibility but any legitimacy in saying like, maybe not saying like, look, this guy is this guy is trash or this person is a wolf in sheep's clothing but saying like, look, this policy we should not be so comfortable with. Um, like, Do you see that as something that should be in the pulpit, even if it's not endorsing a candidate but calling out because I think when we, I, I mean, this is a legitimate question for me because I, I really don't know. Because we have no problem calling out Hollywood, we have no problem calling out Silicon Valley, we have no problem calling out um, certain theologians. Yeah, Rome or you know any other you know people on our side more or less who are don't line up with us a certain way. But then there's something about critiquing poli- like critiquing a politician. Um, especially ones that I see are sort of, uh, it, it seems as though they have the, the broader evangelical church or the evangelical voting bloc sort of in the palm of their hand. Um, do you think leaders would, I, I just, I'm just curious how you think about that. Like, or not necessarily like, uh, like from the pulpit, I guess, more from from up front in the church, maybe not someone who speaks on behalf of the, you know, the, the ethics and religious liberty uh, platform of the Southern Baptist Convention, or this person who speaks on behalf of whoever, but like a pastor in the pews. I'm just curious, because yeah. I, I really don't know how to think through those things, but I sort of wish there would be voices that would at least helpfully complicate yeah, I think though that the, the, the difficulty I find is that we make we either approving of someone or disapproving of someone, and so often I find those acclaims or those those put downs are 
not really for strictly biblical things, but cultural prejudices. You know, and I think there's a huge amount of cultural prejudice that gets in with with the, the with Bible verses here and there and so on, and and so that what you have is is a dislike or a like, but it isn't. <clears throat> um, it may not be uh, f- fair to use the pulpit to use the. Uh, on the other hand, there would be certainly some ways, um, some things to warn against, and, and that, that you'd be remiss to not warn against. And and that that would be common, you know, sheep in wool's clothing, or rather, wool's in sheep's clothing, or something. One of the yeah, yeah, because because it's a, a danger is a real danger. I mean, I, I can I can understand. Uh, I mean, our pastor will not mention names so much. I think mentioning names. Shouldn't be done unless we need to, but he'll he'll sometimes really hammer the health and wealth gospel in in so many words uh, as something that's that is um, this powerful and yet very misleading, and people can be drawn into it. That, that we're here to be rich, and God wants us to be rich. And if you're not rich, you're screwing up somewhere. And and uh, he just really. Ha- down on that. I, I think that's... Well, that's a biblical teaching. It, it's a mis... It, it's a bad biblical teaching. But I mean, that's that's what he's... Ta- kind of thing he's talking about. Is... is uh, uh, Again, I think I avoid names as much as possible, but, but to, to get people to think themselves with with uh, what we're doing. I mean, we... Evangelicals have done this with liberal theology since... Evangelicals have existed. Uh, I don't see any reason uh, why not. But I think I mean this is where I really re- uh, respect Schaefer a lot, having heard him for hours going off on people he disagreed with. He would bend over backwards to, to respect the, them as a person, and, and it's complete non-Christian saying crazy things. The only one I really saw him trashy really really got angry with is he. He uh, he met Timothy Leary once because Timothy Leary was on house arrest in Lausanne. <laughs> he got busted for I think it was for carrying marijuana into Switzerland or something. I can't remember. But he was up in Lausanne under house arrest, and someone arranged Schaefer to go up and see him. And he came back down, and he was just really steamed. He says he doesn't care a rip. He doesn't care about the kids. He doesn't care about anything. He just cares about himself. And here he's been leading people for years. Uh, you know, and come get high, come with me, about all this stuff. And, and, and uh, he, having spent years getting a lot of those kids out of the soup, uh, he goes and speaks to the source of it all and, and just had gone, thinking at least he had integrity, that he believed in his ideas, and he took them seriously, but he just, he's, he's absolutely hollow and uh, uh, out for himself and nothing else. Other than that, he he, he would really try and say would treat someone as, a, as someone to be respected and disagree totally disagree completely disagree uh, which I think is a help uh, because it helps everybody know how to talk talk about other people but, but 
don't know. I mean, I think that not so long ago, Rob Bell came through here uh, with different churches and so on. And uh, I remember we we thought nothing of telling our students what we thought of his theology, you know, and uh, we didn't do it from church, but we did it from the pulpit of the breeze, certainly. And, and uh, I, I, I think we can't possibly not do that kind of thing if we think someone yeah. is really... I, I guess I'm just, that's where I feel like if we can critique people on theology or cre- critique economic systems or whatever, shouldn't we also be able to critique a politician? If we're not endorsing a politician, shouldn't we also be able to say... I'll just, like, one example. Our church, after the Charlottesville riot, person who led the prayers of the people, Korean-American man, said, I never thought there would be a president for the United States who would equivocate on on Nazis. And this is a disturbing day for me and shows a sign of moral... I forget his exact words. But basically... And he called him out before the prayers of the people, but in part, because I think a lot of people in the room were quite shaken by what had happened the day before, yeah. and it would have been... So, I, there's part, there, there's, I don't know, there's a part of me that's like, I also want, I, I understand not wanting to endorse from a pulpit, yeah. or tell someone how to vote, but, uh, and we're going to speak about other yeah. issues, I feel like we have to be able to, we're going to criticize on theology, and philosophy, and uh, entertainment, and economics, I think... I, I sometimes I'm like I don't understand why I mean I understand why I guess but it just seems as though there needs to be a time to say some things about politics as well that aren't always because I, I I heard a lot of uh, pastors this Obama uh, sure. thanks Obama and all that sort of stuff never said a positive thing about him and now bend over backwards to just say very positive things about I mean, I think it's, it's quite a mixed bag and quite, quite a
like one politician could, um, they, their previous acts could have been like not directly in your ethical route, but if it, if eventually you think it draws you closer, I feel like sometimes that's the better case. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's also like some progressives churches they tend to bring more numbers but sometimes you gotta like weigh out each and kind of take little bits of each and then morph it into like a like a plan C like mm-hmm. your own kind of your own way of just morphing it and taking the best of both and just pushing those ideas and kind of making compromises to move forward that, you know? I think so. I, I, I think you, know, you described what I think goes on with all of us is we, we mush together a lot of different things and ideas and thoughts and so on. And, and we, uh, I, for example, like to sleep on things before I do. And that mushes them together more. Who knows what happens then? Uh, but but I feel more confident having slept on things. And but you, you're exposed to all sorts of different things. You evaluate them uh, in one way. You evaluate them a bit differently the next day. But gradually, something sort of settles. Uh, sometimes. And, and maybe that's what you're referring. Yes, you had something here. Thank you. Um, I was thinking about what you were saying too. And and as someone being in the church congregation, sometimes I look and I think something big has just happened. And we do need to speak to it. I think that the pastor or someone who doing the prayer or someone needs to address it because it's the elephant in the room. Everybody there knows what just happened. And I don't think you have to um, use a name and say that it's someone's fault. Um, keep people away from that kind of thing. Yeah. Stick with the, the issues or you said policies but the issues um, and and so I did want to just bring up one one issue that I think helps to balance out pro-life. And I, when I say balance out, I just mean because pro-life is on one side, um, the conservative side, say. Um, and most Christians should value human life and, and the pre-born baby or the unborn baby. But then for a year and a half, I've been studying about refugees and asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. And I am blown away um, by the the voiceless um, dehumanization, the uh, voicelessness, dehumanization, the threat of death and, and um, uh, persecution, the very definition of those people. So we've got on our hands, you know, the left that you know, or the the more. Uh, not conservative, so you've got left and right. Mm-hmm. So um, you've got value of life, exactly. and no one's valuing all life. Mm-hmm. So as Christians, I'm wondering, can't we raise our voices and say, we want all life being valued? Mm-hmm. And um, I haven't had anybody push back too much on me on that. Mm-hmm. But, um, <coughs> you know, that a lot of people will say, well, you know, Israel and pro-life and this and this, they'll list off all these mm-hmm. things. 
And then, but if I just mention that, it seems to have people just stop and think, well, I didn't know that. So if you're going to look at something, it seems like if you feel like an issue is important, look at that issue on the other side. You know, if it's, if it's Democrats, look at something on the Republican side, the same kind of issue, and really get to know that issue. Yeah. And I feel like that really helps with... I mean, for me, looking at that, I don't know what I will do, but, um, you know, when it comes to voting, I, I, because of all the, that has happened with the refugees, I, I have a very hard time voting for um, on the, on the uh, conservative side. Mm -hmm. Because I can, only because, I can look and say, maybe we can handle all these things at the grassroots level, and we can um, come together as Christians. But, yeah, it's a really big, big issue. Yeah. And, and your ability to speak about the pro-life side will be enormously better if you're known to be caring about the other. Yeah. Too. So you're not a, uh, a partisan mm -hmm. just for one, you know, mm -hmm. a, 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 a special issue. I remember I was, I was speaking down at this, at this uh, I forget who it was for it. It was at the Senate in Washington. I had lunch with the senator. And he said, someone had come to him, he said, well, no, this is way back in the early 80s, I think. Um, someone had come with a, a list of, of 14 moral issues, and they were checking out his voting record to see how he scored on these 14 moral issues. And, and uh, I asked him what the moral, 14 moral issues were, and he, he said he totally flunked because he only had one moral issue. That, well, only one of the 14 issues he he voted correctly on, which was the abortion issue. Yeah. Uh, all the rest were... Uh, well, pro-gun. Gun, gun laws, Panama, gun. Panama Treaty, uh, who we did, how we did, as if that was a clear moral issue. It was a, it was a conservative package. There was yes. one clear moral issue in it, but that one clear moral issue was totally relativized by being put in a list of 13 other just conservative issues which were not clear moral issues, to me at least. Uh, and and uh, the, 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 the bite, the, the, the moral bite that the abortion issue has was lost. Mm -hmm. and, and I think with that and, and on the other side, just as we, as, as you say, we're for life, meaning not just life isn't just the unborn, uh, it, it means the old age and the people in between, and, and not just people who are comfortably in their suburban homes, but people on the Mexican border right. who are, who are uh, right. just completely right. at a loss. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Victims of the drug people. And, and, yeah. and, uh, uh, so, but, but if we, I think our people need to see credibility, they, they're looking for the real thing, which is not just one issue, but credibility uh, uh, for that principle as it applies wherever it applies. Now, none of us are infinite. So you can't do everything, yeah. but I think we need to be sensitive to the to the whole thing. I just I, I don't know what, and that, that raises huge issues as well because I can't imagine we can just open the borders for everybody to come through, and, and yet we can do an awful lot better than we've done. Oh yeah, I, I mean also borders aren't aren't really open like that either. So unfortunately, yeah. um, yes. I mean, so studying that whole thing about refugees, especially asylum seekers, right now. Yeah. 
time would be a good thing to, to check. And all the um, laws that have changed since the summer, which I was just shocked. Right, yeah, I can imagine. And you know, the Bible has sojourners are in all these lists. Yes, right. They're all in these yeah, lists in the Bible. Yeah. Did you have something? Well, it's it's a, an observation I, I would wonder if you might comment on, and it's that sort of sort of behind the, um, a, a lot of the questions that everybody has and and, and comments that people bring forth. Um, I think that, that as Christians, it's important to recognize that it's 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 part of. It's, it's sort of absent from our revelation, which means it's part of our heritage, that there, there are enormous holes in, in what we've been told to believe and what we've been told, uh, 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 you know, the pragmatic way to... to have, what, what, are the, what are the functional and effective answers for, for the societies that we live in? And, and as a consequence, even, even now that almost everybody's gone, uh, just with the small group that's left, we'll have lots of differences of opinion about about prioritization, how to balance between, you know, this part of life and that part of life and one party and another, how I'm going to vote and everything like that. And that leaves us with something that actually has great pragmatic value for the church. And that is that when you and I finally get a chance to go out for coffee and sit down and, and go down our own 14, list of 14ers, uh, or whatever we're going to call it, that, and we find out we totally disagree, will you still love me? Mm-hmm. You know, so as far as like bringing bringing civility to the mm-hmm. to the to the table and and being a, a light, this is really important. You know, we're we're not going to have unanimity. Mm-hmm. You know, but w- when you find out that we don't have it, will you still love me? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's and 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 that's um, that's part of our history. Going not, not just as a nation, but as 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 Christian people that. There are things that we've not been told the answers to, mm-hmm. and and we're going to wrestle as individuals, and but but within a community that's supposed to end up looking like the bride, mm-hmm. right? So that's all I want. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But we need to be prepared for the even in the small group the disagreements that, that may exist between those right. where we attempt to fill those gaps and, and say that's that's okay. Yeah. That's fine. That's within what we expect, and why not? And because yeah. uh, we're not clones of each other, and, and uh, we need the diversity. We need the we need the, the difference between us, and, and to be able to see that as where we can all learn what we couldn't have learned otherwise. To see that as a, as a positive thing rather than as a negative yeah. thing, we have to tolerate as 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 if it was some affliction that we're, we that we uh, are man enough to to tolerate. But, uh, yeah, I think one of the things my, uh, that I think my brother does, Charlie, who's written this book and does these goes into churches, is it's really challenging Christians to have their theology, um, our theological perspective, be bigger than our political perspective, so that we, so that our politics are not don't function as an idol. And because, I mean, if, if anyone believes this politician is going to solve the problem, it can do it, can fix it, well then we've got an idol, we've got politics as an idol, because mm-hmm. we should know from scripture that this isn't the case, and that, so that we'll be, we ought to be able to differ with each other with civility if we all remember that God is the Lord, God is on the throne, and in fact, um, our nation is in desperate need of repentance, as Israel was, I've been reading the prophets, and my goodness, the, God's, Threat of judgment coming down on on his people because of their 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 sin and so on. 
Um, we are, you know, we have to have that the bigger theological perspective and that God is on the throne, that God is the Lord, that ultimately he is going to make things right. And yes, we need to wrestle and figure out who to vote for and, and work on issues that we that we care about, work for justice, work for for um, for the common good in whatever way he called each of us. But knowing that ultimately, you know, my program is not going to save the world. And the Republican Party isn't going to, the Democratic Party isn't going to, it's going to be the Lord. That, that I'm sure, has got to be one of the biggest pieces to helping us be civil with each other around us, our differences. Well, we had about, maybe we can just pray together when we, uh, as we disperse. Let's pray together. Oh God, we just thank you for everybody here concerned about these issues, and we pray, Lord God, for your mercy on our country. We just don't know the answer to countless, countless, countless problems, and aren't just ready to march in and fix things. But we do, we do see certain lights, Lord, and we do see certain things that we want to see to grow, we see other things that we want to shrink. And we pray, Lord God, for this, some good come out of this impeachment trial. We pray for the election next year or next November. We pray, Lord God, for uh, you to be with our elected officials, uh, to give them wisdom, to give them humility before you, to give them a deep, deep uh, sense of justice, a sense of caring, a sense of love and kindness. So, Lord God, we commit this country to you, which we we can't pretend we deserve a, a great redemptive move from your side because we're filled with greed, we're filled with anger, we're filled with selfishness, we're filled with not caring for each other very well. And yet, Lord God, we know that you are a God of mercy, so we praise Father, for your great, great mercy and your grace to surround us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen.